Well, I'm so grateful that we could sing that song together as a church today, because I'm sure you're aware, as I am, that this is just a heavy season in the life of our church. There's just a lot of people who are going through some very difficult God-ordained trials, and uh, physically, um, family, losing loved ones to death, um, some scary diagnosis uh, of uh, kind of their health, and it just seems to be they just seem to be mounting. It seems like every day there's somebody new that uh, we hear about who's uh, been hit with some challenging news, some difficult um, trial that God has providentially ordained for their lives. And so I hope that those of you that are in that position, uh, as you sang that song, just felt the big strong arms of God around you, holding you fast, amen? I think it's also an appropriate song for us to sing as we launch into our study of the book of 1 Peter. And I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles with me. And the reason why I say that is because when you think of Peter, right or wrong, typically the first thing that comes to our minds is how he blew it big time. And how he denied the Lord, not just once, but three times. And for whatever reason, that typically sticks out in our minds as the biggest thing that Peter ever had to deal with. And he lost sight of Christ. He lost his grip, if you will, on the Lord. But the good news is the Lord never lost his grip on Peter. And so we're going to look at that this morning as we begin this brand new study of a book that I personally have never gone through in my life in an in-depth way. And so I'm very excited to see what the Lord is going to teach me personally, but also all of us as a church as we gather together every Sunday and work our way verse by verse through this letter that was written by the Apostle Peter. And so you have it there in front of you, and so let's begin by reading the first phrase. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this privilege that we have to come before you and your word and have you speak to us through the letters and prophecies that you inspired men to write many, many years ago that are as relevant today as they were when they were first inspired by your Spirit. And Lord, it just seems like this book is the right book, it's the right time, it's the right season for us as a church to go through this and, and, and uh, learn together. And Lord, as we just zero in this morning on the man you used to write this book, 
I pray that our hearts would be encouraged, strengthened, comforted, and most of all, that we would be more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, according to the 16th century reformer, Martin Luther, if you want to understand Scripture, the first books a person should read are Romans, the Gospel of John, and 1 Peter. Well, during the last 10 years, I have preached through both John and Romans, but I was unaware when I chose 1 Peter as our next book to study together that we would be completing Luther's trifecta of Scripture, which for me as a preacher feels like scoring some expository hat trick or something. But as I've begun to wade into the book of 1 Peter, I can see why Luther had such a high regard for this book, and he put it on the same level as those monumental treatises we know as the Gospel of John and the book of Romans. Because this, this letter that Peter wrote, and it's a little letter, that he wrote to believers who were scattered across Asia Minor, while more pastoral than theological is a compact version of the Christian faith and the Christian life. Someone likened 1 Peter to a traveler's guide for pilgrims. And in these five chapters, just 105 verses, Peter summarized everything that we as Christians need to know as we journey through this world as foreigners on our way home to heaven. You often hear me say that the Bible is our final authority. And it's the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. And that holds true for the book of 1 Peter, which clearly and concisely lays out the basic convictions and conduct of those who follow Christ. Peter was one of the original followers of Christ who had the unique privilege of walking with Jesus for three years while he was here on this earth. And after that, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, Peter continued to follow him for over 30 more years with the help of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus sent to indwell and empower and conform his followers into his likeness. This particular letter was written around A.D. 64, near the end of Peter's life, which was about 30 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And so he was likely, uh, depending on when he first met Christ, in his late 60s or early 70s. And so what we have before us are the words of a seasoned saint, a spiritual sage, if you will, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage and strengthen his fellow followers of Christ with the wisdom and experience that he had gleaned from a lifetime of, of faith, a lifetime filled with many glorious triumphs and many bitter defeats. Peter is not only the most well-known disciple of Christ, but he's probably the most relatable of the 12. Wouldn't you agree? 
Anyone familiar with the New Testament knows Peter because he's mentioned no less than 160 times. And so to know Peter is to love Peter. And what makes him so lovable is how relatable he is. He's not some larger-than-life stained-glass saint that we look up to and think, well, I will never be like Peter. Most of us can identify with Peter, probably more than we can identify with Paul. I don't know about you, but Paul comes across to me in the Scriptures as some next-level Christian. I mean, he's like in a, in a category all by himself with, with just this unattainable theological prowess and superior godliness. But Peter, I don't know, he just feels like he's more on our level with all of his endearing faults and foibles and, and failures. As I mentioned earlier, the one thing that Peter is typically remembered for most is when he denied Christ and the rooster crowed. Can you imagine your worst failure preserved for all time in the pages of Scripture so that everybody could read about it? Anybody in on that? No thanks. But it was the failures and the hard lessons like his denial that Christ used to grow and mature Peter in his faith, and to prepare and equip him to courageously proclaim the gospel in an increasingly hostile environment, and to empathetically provide comfort to fellow believers who were being tempted and tried much like he had been. John MacArthur has written a very helpful book called 12 Ordinary Men. I know some of the men in our church have read that, and he just does uh, some character sketches uh, on each of the 12 disciples. And this is what he said uh, in his chapter on Peter, which I reread this week. He said, quote, Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except Jesus. Just take that into account for a second. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The name of Jesus, survey says, right, mentioned most. Number two is Peter. No one speaks as often as Peter, and no one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so frequently rebuked by the Lord, and no disciple ever rebukes the Lord except Peter. No one else confessed Christ more boldly or acknowledged his lordship more explicitly. Yet no other disciple ever verbally denied Christ as forcefully or as publicly as Peter did. No one is praised and blessed by Christ the way Peter was, yet Peter was also the only, Christ, only one Christ ever addressed as Satan. The Lord had harsher things to say to Peter than he ever said to any of the others. All of that contributed to making him the leader Christ wanted him to be. God took a common man with an ambivalent, vacillating, impulsive, unsubmissive personality and shaped him into a rock-like leader, the greatest preacher among the apostles, and in every sense, the dominant figure in the first 12 chapters of Acts where the church was born. Bottom line, you cannot separate the man from his message. And that's why before we dive into this letter, I thought it would be good for us just to get acquainted with the man behind this letter, and more importantly, the Lord behind this man. 
the Lord who made this man who he was, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been coming to Lakeside for a number of years, you have gotten used to me in the first message of any new book study. I focus on the opening verses and I try to introduce the book by creatively painting the big picture and then providing uh, the, 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 the flow of the book with an outline and, and, and stating the theme. And so I normally have a title slide and you have an outline in your hand. But today, I, I simply want to trace the ways that Jesus transformed this rough-around-the-edges fisherman into a powerful leader and a strong pillar of the early church and the author of this very relevant, very practical letter. Now, obviously, time will not allow us to cover every detail of the life of Peter from the time he left his nets to follow Jesus till he died, but my goal is just to provide you with a, just a brief biographical sketch, if you will, of, of Peter, and, and just touch on the highlights of his life and ministry. And I want to I just show you some snapshots of the key moments in Peter's life and help you see how these moments are woven into the very fabric of this epistle. And so just for the sake of a, an outline this morning, I, I've divided Peter's life and ministry into six stages. And I want to look at these stages with you. And again, we're going to be doing a, a survey of the life of Peter. And so hopefully you've got your Bibles and your fingers ready because we're going to be moving fast uh, through a lot of different passages in text. So first of all, the first stage of Peter's life, he was called by Jesus Christ. He was called by Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And this was an interesting study for me, and I had to, had to pull up a harmony of the Gospels on my computer just to make sure that I was kind of putting all these things in, in chronological order as best I could. Um, but if, if you're familiar with the harmony of the Gospels, it's a, they put all four Gospels uh, in, in, a, in a row, side by side, and then they put all the, 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 the common um, experiences or common events uh, and, the, and the verses next to them, and some events uh, are recorded by all four Gospels, some are recorded by three of the Gospels, some recorded by just two of the Gospels, and some events are recorded in just one of the Gospels. And so it's interesting just to kind of follow the flow of a harmony of the Gospels. If you've never looked at one, I would encourage you to, to, to explore that. It's, it's really fascinating to kind of see the flow of the New Testament. And so uh, I say that because the calling of the disciples... Uh, can be very confusing because it seems like there were multiple calls and there were. In other words, uh, there was an initial meeting that the disciples had with Jesus and then later he actually officially, he officially called them uh, to be his disciples. And so we're going to see that here in John chapter 1 verse 35. John 1 verse 35. Again, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. In other words, John was directing his disciples away from him to the Lamb of God, Jesus, who they should be ultimately following. 
And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So Andrew had the joy of introducing his brother to Christ. Some of you have had that privilege of introducing a, a family member, maybe your brother, your sister, your mom or dad, maybe your children, to a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so th that was Andrew's privilege. But notice, Jesus already knew Peter, or Simon, better, probably better stated. He already knew who he was. But when they met for the first time, he changed his name from Simon to Cephas, which in Aramaic means rock, and translated Peter or Petros in the Greek. And this was a more fitting name for who Simon would become after Jesus got done testing him and refining him and transforming him into a rock-like man who he could use to found the church. We're used to that expression, right, when we maybe... Uh, appreciate someone's strength and stability that we say, man, they're just like a rock. That was what Jesus intended Peter to become. And you, you, you're aware of this, that in ancient times, names were given to describe what a person was or would be like. And sometimes, in fact, God actually changed a person's names at, at, at a critical point in their lives. Remember Jacob, the deceiver, uh, after wrestling with God all night, uh, God changed his name to Israel, one who wrestles with the Lord. And so this was very common uh, in that day. And so during the, the three years of Peter's interaction with Jesus, uh, during Jesus' life and ministry, you, you notice a, a gradual shift from Simon to Simon Peter, to just Peter, which really is symbolic of the transition, the, 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 or maybe this, the sanctification process that Christ took his lead disciple through. Whenever he was called Simon, whenever Jesus called him Simon, um, or one of the gospel writers um, mentioned him by the name Simon, that was an indication that he was acting like Simon. He was acting like his old self and needed to be rebuked, needed to be corrected. But whenever he was referred to as Peter, that meant he was acting and responding like Jesus intended him to act and respond. I think the most notable affirmation that he was living up to his new name was when he made his great confession that Jesus was the Messiah in Caesarea Philippi. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. I had the privilege of reading and explaining this text in Caesarea Philippi on one of our 
recent trips to the land of Israel, and it was exhilarating to stand where perhaps Peter was in the vicinity making this strong declaration about who Christ is. Notice Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, as some of you probably are aware, sadly, the Catholics interpret this to mean that Peter was the founder of the church. He was the first pope, if you will. And all the popes to this day are direct descendants all the way back to the first pope, the original pope, Peter, that he was the rock on which Christ or God built the church. But I think it's better to understand this verse in particular. I say that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. That rock that he was talking about, this boulder, this is a different word here, rock, than the word Petros, he's referring to the declaration that Peter made, that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the foundation of the church. Christ is the foundation of the church. It's very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about that. Paul said that the church was built on the foundation of Christ. He is the cornerstone. Even Peter understood this because in this letter, 1 Peter chapter um, 2, he uses the imagery of rocks and stones. In chapter 2 of Peter, verse 5, Peter says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he likens all believers to being stones that are alive or rocks. Notice verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone. So Jesus, uh, Peter understood. He, he wasn't the, the founder of the church, the founder. The, the, the foundation of the church. He wasn't the rock that Jesus was referring to. It was Christ himself, the, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn uh, over to Mark, and here we have a second encounter that Jesus had with the disciples in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. We see a little different setting, a little different wording. So this is a, indicates to us this is a, another occasion where he called Peter and, and his brother to himself. And he was going along, this is Mark 1.16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brothers of, brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you 
fishers of men, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So Peter was a fisherman by trade, and he and Andrew owned a, a family fishing business um, in, in Capernaum, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it, it seems that they may have been business partners, or at least fellow fishermen with James and John. Um, and in fact, the same kind of fish uh, that they caught 2,000 years ago is still served in restaurants along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and you can order it, and it's called St. Peter's Fish. I had it once. It's got a lot of bones in it. It wasn't like salmon, hun. Sorry. You wouldn't like it. But notice Luke chapter 5. Again, another encounter that Peter had with Jesus, calling him to a deeper commitment to him. Luke chapter 5. Verse 1, now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is lake, the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. This was likely Peter and Andrew, Peter and Simon and Andrew's boat and John and James and John's boat. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. Again, again, I think these guys, this is James and John, they were partners in, in, uh, in their fishing company. And they came and filled both of the boats as they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all, the comp all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is when, as I mentioned several weeks ago, these guys just sent it. <laughs> they just went for it. They, they, they literally left everything and said, okay, we're all in. Another interesting note about Peter was that he was married. We know that because Jesus healed his mother-in-law, and you have to, in order to have a mother-in-law, you have to have a wife, right? And so Luke chapter 4, right there on the page before perhaps, verse 38, then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her, and standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. Paul also mentioned that, that Peter took his wife along with him on his journeys, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. In fact, if you 
visit Capernaum today, you can view the ruins of an ancient church which tradition says was built over Peter's house. It kind of has a glass floor, so you can look down into uh, the excavation that they assume was, was Peter's home, where he lived with his wife. And we don't know if he had any children that's never mentioned. But you're still there in Luke. Look at Luke, look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Another part of Peter's calling this is the, uh, the official choosing of the 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. This is Jesus. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when, they came, when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now this is one of four lists of the 12 apostles in the New Testament, and Peter is listed first in all of them, which is an indication that he was the leader. He was the spokesman for the rest of the disciples. And if you know anything about Peter, he was the one asking all the questions, but he was also answering all the questions. Peter was also part of Jesus' inner circle, along with James and John, who who Jesus gave the special privilege of, of, of certain um, uh, special moments like watching the healing of Jairus' daughter or witnessing the transfiguration or praying with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so these verses that we looked at, I think, cover the, the calling of Peter, how he was called by Jesus Christ. Secondly, he learned from Jesus Christ, or he was instructed by Jesus Christ. And, and based on the variety of accounts throughout the Gospels, Peter is portrayed as a cocky, aggressive, impulsive, opinionated, outspoken individual. I mean, he was the kind of guy you never had to wonder what he was thinking because he would always tell you. And he was the master of the absolute statement. You will never wash my feet. I will never deny you. Someone described Peter as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. And said that his mouth was often running while his brain was in neutral. And so Christ had his work cut out for him. He saw this man with the raw stuff, the raw material, the right stuff to become a great leader. And it's oftentimes those kids perhaps, right, that give us the, the biggest run for our money as parents, that, that we're pulling our hair out going, Lord, what did I do to deserve this, you know? Who is this kid and what is ever going to happen to this kid? Is he going to live to his fifth birthday, right? Um, and it's oftentimes those kids that the Spirit of God harnesses to do great things for Jesus, amen? That was Peter. And so over time, Christ taught him many lessons and rebuked him often, which helped him change and grow into a humble, patient, submissive, self-controlled, gracious, loving man that we see him 
in 1 Peter. When he wrote his letter some 30 plus years later. Which, by the way, that in and of itself should be an encouragement to all of us. That, that it takes a lifetime to grow to become like Christ. You can't develop Christian character overnight. It's a long, hard road. And uh, it takes a lot of trials and temptations along the way. And so let's just consider some of the most memorable, teachable moments and transformative interactions that Peter had with Jesus. And we'll start in Matthew. And probably one of the stories that is most familiar is when Peter walked on the water, at least for a little while. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I mean, these are big, burly fishermen. And they're screaming like little schoolgirls here. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I mean, you just got to love this guy. The, the other guys are taking a more, you know, safety man approach. Okay, well, what's going on here? Is this a ghost? Is it really him? The, the crazy storm here? I'm not going to get out of the boat. What are you talking about? And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, if that's really you, let me come out there with you. That looks like a lot of fun. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind... And becoming frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little, oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? He will hold me fast, right? Glug, 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 glug. I feel like I'm drowning in my trial. Christ reaches out, right, and hauls us back to the surface and into the safety of the boat and he calms the storm. But Jesus used this experience to expose Peter's fear and Peter's doubt, to, to strengthen his faith, to shore up his faith. How about Matthew 16? We were there already looking at Peter's great confession and right on the heels of that, in verse 21, talk about coming off a mountaintop, right? Back to reality. I mean, crashing and burning back to earth. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Really, Peter? You're going to pull aside the Son of God and tell him that he's got it all wrong. God forbid it, 
Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, no way, man. Over my dead body is this going to happen. I'm not going to let this happen to you. I'm not going to let you be killed. I think he missed the raise from the dead part. All he heard about was he was going to get killed. And Peter stepped up and said, no way, man. It ain't happening. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me. He didn't even call him Simon at this point. He, he, went, he went all the way down to hell and said, Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And again, this just exposed Peter's pride and Peter's selfishness. And then again, we're there in Matthew, Matthew 17. An interesting little lesson that Jesus taught Peter, a lesson that he needed to learn. Matthew 17, verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do, you, whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax for their sons, from their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. In other words, you and I don't have to pay this tax. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Perhaps Peter, being the brash, arrogant, um, self-sufficient, independent guy that he seemed to be, had a problem with submitting to authority. And it's no wonder that when he wrote this letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, notice how he articulates this lesson that Jesus taught him. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor all people, love the brethren, brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor the president. We'll get there. You have a few more months to struggle with that. But we're going to get there. What does that look like to honor our president? How about John chapter 13? John chapter 13, this is the classic account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and if you remember, Peter and one of the other disciples that had been sent by Christ to set up the, 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 the upper room for the Passover celebration. And uh, apparently, they overlooked one very important detail. They forgot to acquire a slave to wash the feet of the disciples when they came in. 
because as you know, when they would sit down to share a meal together, they would kind of lay themselves out on one of their elbows or one of their elbows and eat with one of their hands and so your feet would be in the face of the guy next to you. And the last thing you wanted was stinky feet, right, at, at the dinner table. And so no one was about to humble themselves and go over to that bowl of water and grab that towel and assume the role of a slave. And so it says that Jesus poured water into the basin. He got up, excuse me, from the supper. He laid aside his garments, took a towel, he girded himself, poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter first. And he said to him, Lord, do you wash, do you wash my feet? Not now he was feeling really stupid. Like, oh man, shoot, I should have, I should have got, I knew I should have got up. I knew I should have got up and did it. But now this is really awkward because now my Lord is washing my feet. This is very awkward. And Jesus answered and said to him, what do you not realize now but will understand hereafter? Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, give me a bath. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. He was referring to Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray him. His point was, listen, if you have already committed your life to follow me, you don't need to get saved all over again. You've already, your sin has already been forgiven, but from time to time you need a, a good foot washing because you've trampled around in the sin of the world, right? And you need to, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus went on in that same chapter to make his point. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Again, when Peter wrote his letter some 30 years later, in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, above all, keep fervent in your, what? Love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. He also said this in chapter 5, verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Which sounds very similar to how Jesus clothed himself with that towel. And he says, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Back to Matthew, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, you having fun yet? Isn't this fun to learn about this guy, Peter, who wrote this? Matthew chapter 26, verse 40. This was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and while Jesus um, gave Peter this um, undeserved privilege of being in his inner circle and bringing him in uh, away from the rest of the disciples to pray with him on, on the night in which he was betrayed, Peter squandered that opportunity by sleeping, Matthew 26, verse 40. And when he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so he calls out Peter. He doesn't say anything about James and John, who may have been sleeping as well, but he calls out Peter. It's like when 
God shows up in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, and he said, hey, Adam. He didn't say, hey, Eve. He said, hey, Adam. He addressed the leader. He says, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that happened two more times. He went away to pray, and he came back, and he found them sleeping. And it not just exposed perhaps their laziness there, but, but their cluelessness. They had no clue what Jesus was grappling with at that moment. They offered zero support and encouragement for their Lord in his darkest moment. Again, Peter perhaps had this in mind, this occasion in mind, where He was told to keep watching and praying when he wrote chapter 5, verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then maybe one more lesson, Um, John chapter 18, love this. Again, another very endearing moment for Peter, at least in my mind. In John chapter 18, verse 10, this is when Judas showed up with a cohort, a Roman cohort, which is close to 500 soldiers, battle-ready soldiers, show up in the garden to take Jesus away, to arrest Jesus. John chapter 18, verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath and cup, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Matthew records that Jesus also said this, Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was 1,000, so, or excuse me, 6,000. So 12 times 6,000, that's a lot more than a, a Roman cohort. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? In other words, Peter, put your sword away. Stop trying to defend me and vindicate me. If I needed that, I wouldn't need you. I could call the angels of heaven to do that. And so I think this exposed Peter's lack of trust in God and, 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 and need to defend and, and, and vindicate Christ. And I, I think this shows up in his letter. In, 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 in uh, the second chapter of Peter, Peter writes in verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What example did Jesus leave for us? He committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth, and, being, and while being reviled, 
He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I think that was a lesson likely learned on that night in the garden when Christ had to shut Peter down and remind him that God could be trusted to vindicate his own. Again, all of these are very humbling, life-changing experiences, but there was no more humbling experience than when after arrogantly and adamantly insisting that he was willing to die for Christ, Peter lied and denied that he knew him, not just once, but three times. And that brings us to the third stage in Peter's life and ministry. He failed Jesus Christ. Let's look at Luke's account of this, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon. This is Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon. Again, he's not calling him Peter, Peter. He's calling him Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And so Satan wanted a piece of Simon. Just like he wanted a piece of Job in the Old Testament. And I think when Peter, I would assume when Peter heard this, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, that Peter thought to himself, well, Lord, I hope you told him no. He says, no, I didn't say no, but In other words, I I gave him permission, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. By the way, I think that's, that command, that, expectation that Jesus had that once Peter went through this awful experience that he was going to come out of it on the other side and be able to strengthen others. I think that's partly fulfilled in his writing of 1 Peter because he is attempting in 1 Peter to strengthen his brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to the prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And then we see it happen in verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was falling at a distance after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together. Peter was sitting among them and a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, this man was with him too. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately he was still speaking. While he was still speaking, a rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Man, that must have hurt. The bloodied, beaten face turning and looking at Peter. 
while the rooster crowed. And Peter knew he had messed up big time. He wasn't there when Jesus needed him the most. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before, a rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Again, as a result of that humiliating experience, I think Peter was keenly aware of his own weakness and susceptibility to temptation, which made him empathetic to the weaknesses of others and compassionate to those who, who, who would fall into sin after him. He'd been there and done that. And it was through his own shameful failure that he learned to comfort and to console others. And he says it so beautifully in chapter 5, verse 9, but resist him, Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, you're not the only one going through what you're going through. There are others that God is granting the grace to endure. I came across this quote in one of the commentaries I was reading. When I first read it, it brought me to tears, but it simply says this, he speaks with the authority of an apostle, but with the gentleness of one who knew the power of temptation and the difficulty of steadfastness, with the humility of one who well remembered how he himself had fallen. Well, that's thankfully not the final stage in Peter's life. That's not the end of the story because he was restored by Christ. He was restored by Christ. And what's interesting, and I, never, I don't think I ever saw this before, but in the Mark's account of the resurrection, in, in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, when the women came to the tomb after Christ was resurrected, and they were told that Jesus was no longer there, that he had, risen, had been risen. They, they said this, verse 7, the angel said, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Tell his disciples and, and make sure you tell Peter. I think Jesus specifically wanted Peter to know and maybe be the first to know, of all the disciples, to be the first to know that he was alive. And in John chapter 20, when he heard the news, he ran headlong to where they had buried him, and in typical Peter fashion, went barging right into the tomb, while John was kind of standing out on the side, kind of peeking in. Peter just comes rushing in. This is... a. Uh, John chapter 20. Verse 3, so Peter and other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came huffing and puffing and entered, 
I, I added that. That's not in the text, right? And entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in the place by itself. So the other disciple had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. And apparently, after that, at some point, Peter had a personal one-on-one encounter with the risen Christ, because the... Um, the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, when they came back to the, the upper room to, 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 to give the news that they had seen Christ, they said he's also appeared to Peter, so they knew that somehow. Maybe Jesus told them that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, when Paul was describing the accounts of the gospel, he said that after uh, he, he uh, rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So he made it a point, he wanted to have a personal one-on-one encounter with Jesus, or with Peter, after he had come back to life. And then, we're all familiar with the, the ultimate encounter that he had with Jesus in John chapter 21. John chapter 21, if you remember, Peter, for some reason, decided he was going to go back to the fishing trade. Uh, maybe he had failed, couldn't get past the fact that he was no longer uh, useful to the Lord because he, he just messed up so badly. And so he's out there fishing, catching nothing. And then this stranger shows up on the shore and says, hey, you catching anything? Throw it on the other side of the boat. And so when they did, they caught this huge amount of fish. And therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And so when Peter heard that it was the Lord, again, typical Peter fashion, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And he started swimming. He couldn't get back there fast enough to see his Lord. And after having breakfast, Jesus engaged in an unforgettable conversation with Peter that would change his life forever. Verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time. So we're getting there. We're getting from Simon Peter to Peter now, right? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Here we have Jesus restoring and reinstating Peter, giving him an opportunity to express his love to Christ three times, one for every time he denied him. And so he was reinstated as the leader of, of the 12 and the pastor of his church that would launch at Pentecost. And again, I have to think that this was in Peter's mind when he wrote 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And then when he wrote 
in chapter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. I think First Peter was part of the fulfillment of Jesus' exhortation to Peter to shepherd his sheep. That's what he's doing here in First and Second Peter. He's doing what Jesus told him to do. And then quickly, just, we're going to have to fly through this, and I was going to read more passages, but you just need to know, the next time we see Peter in the book of Acts, he is a man on fire for Jesus. And we see through the book of Acts how he served Christ, how he took charge in appointing a replacement for Judas, how he preached a powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost. He healed a lame man, preached a second sermon. He defied the Sanhedrin and refused to keep silent about Jesus. He presided over the first case of church discipline with Ananias and Sapphira. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel and said, we're going to obey God, not man. He confronted Simon the magician. He healed another couple of disciples or uh, Christians, Aeneas and Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. He introduced the gospel to the Gentiles with that encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And he actually participated in the Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15, verse 6, and landed on the right side of history and said, yeah, Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. Even though, if you remember, um, Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter 2 how he had to publicly rebuke Peter for acting like a hypocrite around the Judaizers, but he came around after that. We don't hear anything else about Peter in the New Testament after Acts 15 until we get here to his two epistles that bear his name. And so... The final stage is Peter's martyrdom. He was martyred for Jesus Christ. You're still there in John 21. Notice how that discussion ended on that beach on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. So Jesus predicted that Peter would die a violent death, which by the way, scripture does not record, but all the records of early church history indicate that he was crucified by Nero in Rome around the same time that Paul was beheaded. Eusebius, one of the church fathers, cited testimony of Clement who said that before Peter was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. And as he watched her being led to her death, Clement said that Peter called out to her by name saying, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Just this week I heard from one of our members who is going through a very difficult physical trial and experiencing a lot of pain and discomfort and he had mentioned to his wife that when he was laying awake at night not able to sleep racked with pain he said I just remember Jesus and what he went through on the cross and I realized this was nothing compared 
to what he went through. That's an evidence of God's grace in that guy's life. Wouldn't you agree? When it was Peter's turn to die, he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die like his Lord. So Peter knew what it was like to be threatened, to be persecuted, even killed for his faith in Christ. And in the end, he paid the ultimate price for standing firm for the cause of Christ in a world that was growing increasingly hostile toward those who followed him and represented him. And so when he put quill to parchment to, to, to write this letter to strengthen and shepherd suffering saints, what he wrote was very personal and very practical. If you know anything about the book of 1 Peter, you know there's a lot about suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Verse 19, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And then notice verse 10 of chapter 5. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's fitting that Peter began and ended his letter with a reference to the grace of God. He loved the grace of God. Why? Because he was a trophy of the grace of God. This was no mere formality. Oh, Paul said this, so I, if I want to sound spiritual, I'll say it too. Now, Peter understood that he was who he was by the grace of God. In that stack of 22 commentaries I told you about, I've already fallen in love with one that I'm probably going to have to increase my prescription on my glasses when it's all over because it's so small and I can hardly read it. It's a commentary called An Obedient and Patient Faith by an archbishop who lived back in the 1600s who Spurgeon said, this is the commentary on 1 Peter. This is what Robert Layton said in describing Peter. He said, thus we have in our apostle a singular instance of human frailty on the one side and the sweetness of divine grace on the other. 
free and rich grace it is indeed that forgives and swallows up multitudes of sins of the greatest sins, not only sins before conversion, but foul offenses committed after conversion. Not only once raising them from the dead, but when they fall, stretching out the same hand and raising them again and restoring them to their station and comforting them in it. Not only to cleanse polluted clay, but to work it into vessels of honor, yea, of the most defiled shape to make the most refined vessels, not vessels of honor of the lowest sort, but for the highest and most honorable services. Vessels to bear his own precious name to the nations, making the most unworthy and the most unfit, fit by his grace to be his messengers. And beloved, that doesn't just apply to Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the messenger, the sent one, the representative of Christ, because all of us are Christ's representatives, are we not? All of us are his messengers. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. And it's by his grace that he makes us the most unworthy, the most unfit, fit by his grace to be his messengers. I want to encourage you to do one thing this week as we move forward in our study of 1 Peter, and that is to read through the entire book, all five chapters, at least once. If you're ambitious, read it once a day. Take you maybe 20, 30 minutes. But I think you'll be better prepared uh, as we move forward in our study of this great book. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Peter who left everything to follow Christ. And even though he blew it big time, he truly loved you with all of his heart and had a passion to serve you and to share you with others. And Lord, if we're honest, we know that we have failed you miserably many times over in similar ways. Forgive us for that. I pray that you would continue to pray for us, even as you did for Peter, that our faith would not fail and to use us and fit us by your grace to strengthen and shepherd those around us and to speak the gospel, to share the gospel near and far. And so I pray we would be inspired today by the life of Peter, but more importantly, inspired by the person of Jesus Christ who made Peter who he was. And so we exalt Christ above all. And we pray this in his name. Amen.